Hi, and welcome to FolkPod. I'm your host, Cheryl Prashker, and we're going to be talking to my friends, some of the most entertaining musicians and songwriters that I know. So get ready for a deep dive behind the songs and the lives they've lived through music. And if we play our cards right, they just might play a little something live for us too. This week's guest is Carol Ann Solabello. Born and raised in Staten Island, Carol Ann is a true New Yorker, now living in Brooklyn with her husband and teenage son. She was a founding member of the Americana trio Red Molly and has spent the last few years touring solo and a part of the modern folk quartet No Fuss and Feathers. I first met Carol Ann at the uptown open mic called Sun Music around 1999. In fact, a few of us enjoyed each other's music so much, we formed a group called CC Railroad. That was Ryder Daniels, Rich Boniface, Carol Ann, and myself. I'm not only a bandmate, but a true fan of Carol Ann's writing and her incredible voice. Welcome, Carol Ann. Hello, Cheryl, my friend. Hello, Carol Ann. This is wonderful. I'm so excited that you agreed to do this. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Any chance to talk to you is a good chance. Aw. Well, we've certainly done a lot of talking via phone over the years. That's the truth. Yeah. (laughs) So I just want to ask you some questions and have a conversation about music. The life, universe, and everything. Ah, I'm going to start off kind of like a little far back, if I may. So your fans and the folk community, they know you as a songwriter. They know you as a member of Red Molly. But I know that you were in theater long before that. (laughs) How did you get into theater? How did you make the switch to becoming a touring musician? My secret is out. (laughs) You've unmasked me, Cheryl Prashker. (laughs) I became interested in theater, I guess, the way a lot of people do. You know, the high school musical is happening and, you know, you try out for the musical and you don't make it the first couple of times you try out and then you make it and then you you get on stage and your parents didn't know you could sing and they freak out. (laughs) That's actually an interesting question. I mean, did you feel that you had a good voice? Like at what age does that happen to a young girl? I knew But I was one of those closet kind of singers. I would sing when there was nobody else at home. You know, I'd wait for everybody to go out or sing in the shower. I sang in the church choir too. And then you can sing as loudly as you want. You're just blending in with everybody else. But I I knew I wanted to be a singer from a very young age, but I didn't, I don't think I had any clue what that meant professionally. I would see singers singing on television on like, you know, the Donnie and Marie show or... (laughs) My favorite. Right? I can't believe I just said that out loud. (laughs) You did. See, I've unmasked you too. (laughs) Yes, yes. I'm totally going to admit it. I watched every single one of them. Well, yeah. I mean, we grew up in the age of the variety TV. Right. Donnie and Marie and Sonny and Cher and Mm -hmm. and Hee Haw. Oh, absolutely. Right. All these shows with like performing singers. Glenn Campbell Mm. was the first person I saw on television that played a guitar. Might have been Hee Haw. I don't even know what it was, but I was like, I want to be like Glenn Campbell. And I asked for a guitar. I was like five or six years old and I saw that. That young? Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. So you didn't play piano or anything like that? You just saw the guitar and... Yeah. You know, my parents got me a guitar for one Christmas and I started taking lessons. But as with a lot of young children, that fell by the wayside pretty quickly because practicing is no fun when you're that age, when you want to just be outside playing with your friends and things weren't progressing as quickly as I wanted to. So I gave it up. Did you ever actually go out and audition as a child for anything? No, I did not. I was, I'm a late bloomer in like everything in my life. I I started doing the musicals at the end of high school, like junior year and senior year. I was finally cast in the musicals. Yeah. Nobody knew I could sing because I was the closet singer and I, you know, had a leading part in this 
musical my junior year and my parents were completely floored. I had solo and all that stuff. But no, I didn't audition for anything when I was a kid. And then I went to college, not for theater. I went to school and was an English major, but I belonged to the theater club. And I spent more time in the theater than I did in the library, sadly, in college. I know that feeling. (laughs) Do you regret not going out and trying for something as a younger person? I mean, you grew up in New York City. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I was ready to when I was young. Like, I really wasn't ready to until I started doing it. Here's what I regret. I regret not going whole hog. Hmm. Once I graduated college and spent a few years in a regular job, I worked, you know, at a publishing house in Manhattan for three years. And I was terrifically unhappy for all that time. And I was doing community theater. You know, I was spending days in the office and then hopping on a train to go to Westchester, north of Manhattan after work and spending all night in some community theater in Westchester and then getting up in the morning and doing it all over again. I was exhausted all the time and I wasn't really doing my best at any of these things. And then finally, three years after I had landed this regular job after college, I decided enough is enough and I'm going to go for it and audition and full time. Fortunately, I started getting jobs pretty quickly, but I wish I had done it sooner. I wish I had not Mm -hmm. started a regular job after college. I really do because I didn't like establish myself early enough. Yeah, I didn't go full throttle and I quit just before things got hot. I guess if I hadn't quit theater, I wouldn't have met you and my life would have been totally different. (laughs) So that was sort of in your late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, let's see. I guess I started doing theater full time, let's see, a few years out of college. So that would have made me 25, 26, something like that. I did get to see you in a touring company. And we did. We went to see you in... You did? Yeah, way out in the middle Pennsylvania. A musical? It was a musical. Yeah. Really? Maybe one of the last things you did. Probably. Wow. Oh, so great. That's crazy. We drove. I don't even remember that. We drove to Pennsylvania. I guess they kind of did overlap a little bit. I keep thinking there was this clean break when I came back to New York, but I guess there really wasn't. There was a slight overlap between CC Railroad and my theater life. (laughs) Well, when did you first write your first song? When I was a kid, like everybody does, but I don't remember those. In college, in college, I started playing guitar again after I dropped it as a six or seven-year-old, whatever that was. I picked up guitar in college because, you know, everybody's got a guitar laying around the apartment in college. And uh, I started writing songs. They weren't very good, but they were songs. (laughs) As Jack Hardy would say, just keep writing. Yeah. Yeah. Good or bad. One of them, though, I just remembered this, Cheryl. One of the songs that I wrote, like, in college or immediately post-college ended up on a CC Railroad record. Uh Do you remember What I Wouldn't Give? What did we call What I Wouldn't Give? The fun-ass song. It was. It is. (laughs) Locked up in a seashell all your own. You're hiding inside and all alone. Nobody knows you, no one can get to what is real I only seek to let you feel Your intellect tells you what to prove Collected and calm with every move The passions within you are straining at their seams But will I ever hear you scream? What I wouldn't give What I wouldn't give No, no What I wouldn't give To taste the waters of your soul Did you want to make being a singer-songwriter a full-time job? Because we met at an open mic and 
at that time, late 90s, it was all about the solo artists. It was all about, you know, the singer-songwriter, guy with a guitar, girl with a guitar. Mm-hmm. And we got together, four of us who yeah. really enjoyed each other's company and were in awe of each other's songs and performances. We got together at Ryder's apartment in Manhattan and just hung out once a week and played songs for each other and kind of formed a group. But groups were not that popular in the singer-songwriter world. No. We were, you know, trailblazers. We were on the cutting edge (laughs) of what was to come. (laughs) Folk bands weren't a thing until a few years later. It's true. We were kind of on the crest of a wave there. And we didn't ride our wave quite as far as we could have ridden our wave, you know? No, everybody had day jobs and it was tough to make that commitment. Yeah, we were early to mid-30s and people were starting their family lives. We all moved apart. Yeah, we met. Oh, God, let's go back to when we met. Shall we talk about that? That was fun. This is a fun story. Okay. This is fun. Cheryl Prashker was the first person I met at an open mic on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I walked in because I had seen an ad in Richard Kakaro's monthly newspaper, Acoustic Live. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it told about this open mic that was happening at Sun Music Company on the Upper East Side. And I said, like, oh, I can go to that. I'm free on a Tuesday. Was it Tuesdays or Wednesdays? But anyway, I walk in the door and the first person I see is Cheryl. And she walks up to me with her hands stuck out. I was like, oh, you're new. Hi, I'm Cheryl. <laughs> did I? Yeah, you shook, your, shook my hand. You're like, hey, you know, we we're chatting. Oh, yeah, I did. I remember. Are you recording, Caroline? I was like, no, no, not yet. Or whatever. I was working on a record. She's like, I just finished recording. I was. I helped produce a CD for my friend Lori. <laughs> Here, would you like a copy? They're only 10 bucks. And I had a $10 bill in my pocket. So I gave Cheryl a $10 bill and I got back a copy of Lori McAllister's first CD. Well, who would have thunk? <laughs> and of course, lo, many years later, I would end up in a band with Laurie McAllister. Did not know that at the time. And then the same night, I met my husband, or the man who would become my right. husband. I met Mark the very same night and talked with him. I met a Rich Boniface the same night, who ended up in a band with both of us. And I think I didn't meet Ryder Daniels until a couple of weeks later. But it's like my entire life changed. Isn't that amazing? In one night. Sun Music Open Mic became what it was after the Fast Folk closed. So a bunch of us, like Eric Balky and a few others, were already hanging out at the Fast Folk Cafe where Richard Kakaro was hosting the open mic at that time there. And when that place closed in uh, Lower Manhattan, everybody kind of moved uptown to this little spot and it became uh, an amazing hangout. That era of songwriters from that little group was just quite something. And we did. We met all of the people that became our friends for the next 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, 20 years. It's been 20 years. That was this tiny little room. Now that I think about it, it was really, really small. Very tiny. And the open mic was spectacular, like song after song. It was. Yeah. 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 We were very lucky. Yeah. I met Eric Balke there too. I met Kay Ashley there. I met Charles uh, Nolan there. I met Ty and Doris who later became Girly Man. Oh, right. There. That's right. I met a whole bunch of people there. I think I might have even met Andrew Kerr there. We were very lucky to have that spot and each other and the music. And of course, we were a band for about five years. We toured sort of regionally. You know, people actually sometimes come up to me and go, I got to meet this really amazing singer-songwriter. I know you don't know her, but have you ever met Carol Ann Solabello? (laughs) (laughs) And it always brings a smile to my face because it just is a very important part of my life. And I'm very blessed to obviously still call you friend and musical partner from time to time. Yes. We just kind of worked on a project together and you asked me to play drums and I was very excited to do so. So thank you very much. Oh my God, are you kidding me? I mean, what the listeners may or may not know is... I am in Brooklyn 
and Cheryl is in <laughs> Ontario. Yep, Ontario, Canada. And yet we can still collaborate through the magic of the digital age. I love that. I love that I can record things here in my apartment and send them to you and you can plug in all your microphones and send me 27 tracks of drums. It's wonderful. <laughs> it is the folk process. And interestingly enough, part of the theme of this podcast is to sort of dissect what the word folk means to all of us. We did not grow up, obviously, in the, the age of Woody Guthrie, although we know his material and Pete Seeger and all of those artists that came before us. But our generation, like, how do you define folk? It's a funny word. It is. It confuses people at times, but what does it mean to you? Well, you have a whole lot more folk pedigree than I do. Like, you grew up listening to some folk music, did you not? Yes. Well, more recent folk mm -hmm. music, but, you know, singer-songwriters, yeah, John Denver and stuff like that. Ian and Sylvia, hello. Ian and Sylvia, very much so. Right, um, from the 60s. Yeah, Kingston Trio. Right. Now, I did not... I did not really have a definition for folk music. Like, I knew this land is your land because every American school child knows this <laughs> land is your land, but I didn't know who Woody Guthrie was. I didn't know who Pete Seeger was. My parents were super conservative, and so anything that, like, smacked of lefty anything, and folk music, of course, was often identified with the left, and so, like, my parents were not into that at all. I grew up on doo-wop and Motown. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there was no folk music in my house. It was only one Beatles record in my house. Hmm. But no, I didn't grow up on that kind of thing. So when I came to the scene, it was just like, well, it must be folk music because I play acoustic guitar, you know? <laughs> right, right. So I don't really know. And I've, I've often felt kind of a little bit of like a fish out of water in this scene, despite the fact that I've been in folk music for 20 years. I had a lot of catching up to do, put it that way. Well, folk music obviously is music that touches people. And has it ever surprised you when somebody's come up to you and tell you how much a song has meant to them or watched a reaction in the audience and been yeah. surprised? Yes. It's always a surprise and always a blessing. And it's becoming more so. The older I get, the more I realize that what I'm doing, folk or not, whatever it is, the writing and singing of songs for people live in a room or via recorded means the song is becomes not my own anymore once I put it out in the world. It becomes more important what the song means to the listener than what the song meant to me when I was writing it. You once told me a story about the song True North on Shiver. Mm. And tell us yeah. a story about True North. Well, first of all, I should say that you were probably the first human outside of my household to hear that song. I wrote it and I sent it to you, my Canadian friend. <laughs> There's aspects of the song that I relate to as well. So... I appreciated getting a chance to hear it ahead of time. The character and the story in True North are complete fabrications. I had been thinking about my husband's family who, on one side at least, emigrated from Canada to the United States. My husband's grandmother, who I had the pleasure of knowing, emigrated from Canada to Massachusetts when she was just a little girl. And Mark didn't know this. I was talking with her one day and she said, oh, well, when I was a little girl, I, I didn't even speak English. And Mark was flabbergasted. He's like, what? What language did you speak? She said, why French, of course. He said, well, where did you come from? She said, Canada. My husband had no idea about this aspect of his family history. He didn't know. Yeah. And she never went back. And she had like six, 12 brothers and sisters, something like that. And that is a common theme in Quebec. And yeah. also very common, especially back mm -hmm. then, that they didn't speak English. And it's a very rich history and very proud 
people. Yeah. And it made me think that, you know, she never went back. She didn't pass the language on to her children and her grandchildren didn't even know that she was from Canada. And it just made me think about, you know, this is true from from every other country in the world. People have come to Canada from other places. Your family, I know, emigrated from Europe to Canada and maybe didn't speak English and didn't speak French even. It just amazes me when people leave their homeland and never go back. What must that be like? And is there an ancestral memory that lives inside of people? Like in the song, True North, it's a, a man who is growing older and losing his memory and he finds himself drawn back to his mother's homeland, which is Canada. I talk about the North Way and I talk about the bridge yep. over the St. Laurent River and aspects of Montreal that I hope that you would recognize, which is, I think I sent it to you for like fact checking. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a song that I wasn't going to include on Shiver, hmm. my recording from 2018. Joe Danza, my friend and sometime tour mate, was the producer on that record. And he insisted that this song go on the record. I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's a story. It's totally fabricated. It's not going to fly. I don't feel like it's really going to work. He said, well, here's how you make it work. Like I sang it like a traditional folk song. I would sing a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus over and over and over again. And he said, no, wait, sing the first four verses, get the story out there first, then hit the chorus. It doesn't fit the formula for any kind of songwriting. It doesn't fit the formula for folk songwriting or pop songwriting. And I was like, no, that's ridiculous. And then I tried it and it made the song so much more effective. He rose before the first light of September 23rd Washed and combed his silver hair and dressed without a word Started up the Buick before Marie could ask where he was going He shifted the transmission into drive and pulled away that old car onto the longest road he knew pulled in by the traffic toward the capital he flew exits came and went but albany was not where he was going he pushed the pedal down foreign land she'd come to know he thought about his father and wished that he had asked her more about him before the memory of their union turned to dust Explain what 
And Joe was right. Well, we love producers for that. I mean, yeah. Since then, people talk to me about it. I play it as a 50 something woman. I'm not used to like having my songs being relatable by men. Men with gray hair come up to me with tears in their eyes and they say, thank you for writing that. Really? For whatever reason, people talk to me about their parents with Alzheimer's. People talk to me about the homeland that they miss. People talk to me about getting older. It's been fascinating to me that a song that I made up wholesale. I call it like a miniature novel that really affects people. So it's a gift when people tell me that it affects them. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a beautiful song. 87 North Runs into the border Native land and home We stand on guard For thee, true north Glorious and free True north Glorious and free I see myself as an emotional conduit. Isn't that a great feeling? Yeah. It's one of my more recent revelations. You turn 50 and you have all these revelations. That was one of them. I'm like, oh, my job is just to be like the conductor of electricity. You know, like you use a plug to get electricity from the wall into your computer. We are the plug, the cord that connects people who may not otherwise be able to access their own emotions or process their own emotions. We do that. And we, you know, put it into words, put it into music. We say the things that people wish they could say. How lucky are we? Right? Because I know this is the songs that have moved me in my life. That's what they do to me. Like, I don't know why Patty Griffin or Paul Simon or Lucy Kaplansky or Dar Williams wrote any particular song. I don't know why. And I don't necessarily want to know because each of the songs that they have written that moves me so deeply means something to me, I've made it my own, in my own mind and in my own heart. Right. And when, when people come up to me and say things about certain songs that I perform, that I have written, it's the best gift anybody could give me. It is. If they tell me this song means something to me because, and then they tell me their story countless times. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this too, Cheryl. You know, you're a performer and people yes. kind of open up to you after shows and it never ceases to be amazing. It never ceases to be a blessing and a beautiful moment of connection with people after a show. The names that you just mentioned, are those some of the people that influenced you as a, a songwriter? Oh, sure. Countless others. But yeah, going back to what we said before about what is folk music and what does that mean? And we were coming up in the era of singer-songwriters. The first people I heard doing the kind of thing that I would end up doing were people like the Indigo Girls. I heard them on the radio. They were touring with Neil Young and WFUV was playing them on the radio in the Bronx where I lived. And I was listening. I was like, who are these women? And they had this stripped down sound. It was just their two guitars and their two voices. And then a couple of years later, I heard Sean Colvin for the first time. And she was solo voice with a killer guitar player, you know, and at the same time, Tracy Chapman was making a splash. I listened over and over and over and over again to her first record. Suzanne Vega, Suzanne Vega, who remains like queen of everything mm, in my right. mind, <laughs> was coming up at the time. And her first record I wore it out completely. I have had several copies of it because <laughs> I've, you know, worn them out over the years. That's cool. 
Hell yeah. That's cool. Hell yeah. It was a great time. Like, and when I was listening to these people, I did not think that this is what I would eventually do. I played a little guitar at the time and I was like casually writing songs, but it never would have occurred to me that this really? is what I would do. Oh no. At the time when I was listening to that stuff, I played guitar. It was kind of like a side thing because I was doing theater. I was breaking my back, like I said, doing a day job and doing theater at night, but guitar was my hobby. It was my way of processing my own emotions, I guess, writing bad songs in my drafty apartment. <laughs> At what point did you make the big decision to quit your day job? Three years in. And I was like, enough, 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 enough. And I had started auditioning in earnest. And I think I quit when I landed my first job. I think I was too, um, my, my first theater job, I should say. I think right. I was too nervous at the time financially because I didn't have any sure. kind of safety net. So I think I waited until I had landed a job in Pennsylvania to quit my day job. And then I eventually quit theater. Here's a segue. I eventually quit theater. Well, yeah, so you did. I found I was getting cast for my ability to play the guitar in so many shows. It was Were like, you really? Yeah, I did a whole bunch of shows where that was an important factor. I played guitar in a lot of, not a lot, but a handful of shows. And I realized that I was like, oh, maybe this is what I enjoy more. And I got tired of trying to, you know, fit the role, fit the costume. And I was like, I should write my own things. Ah, interesting. Um, going back to theater just for a second. Do you have a favorite role that you got to play that you were excited about? Oh, wow. Oh, that's excellent. That's an excellent, excellent question. I had a lot of roles that I didn't get to play. <laughs> okay. Favorite role? Not a musical though. It's not a musical. Oh, I would have thought musical. Had I not done this, there would be other musical, but my favorite role I ever played was Lady Macbeth. <gasps> yeah. I did Lady Macbeth for high school students. It was a theater for youth. Oh, you'll love this. You remember where you got married, Cheryl? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Upstairs from where you got married. No way. Irvington Town Hall? Yeah, Irvington Town Hall. The Irvington Town Hall Theater is a replica of the Ford's Theater that's right. in Washington, D.C., and that's where we did Macbeth. <laughs> so fantastic. So you really like those kind of regal roles? Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay, now we're not on the radio, so I think I can probably drop this word, but the roles that I played in straight theater and musical theater were bitches, queens, and whores. That's what I played. <laughs> That is not the title of her new album. Let's just put it out there right now. I played Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar. That's great. She was perhaps the third of that. I played the Baroness in The Sound of Music, the one that everybody hates. Did you? Yeah. Did you ever do Fiddler? Yes. The show I did most, more than anything else. I married the same guy 144 <laughs> times as title in Fiddler on the Roof. You were title. I was Seidel and Fiddler on the Roof, the eldest daughter who gets married live and on stage and has her wedding broken up by a pogrom every single night. That's right. Yeah. It was wonderful. It was really wonderful. Did you get into the emotion of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I loved it. And I learned a lot, too. I learned a great deal. I even learned to say the Sabbath prayer in Hebrew. I did. Yes, that's right. You have to sing it. Don't ask me yeah. to do it now. I'm not sure I could, but no. I, the woman who played my mother-in-law taught me how to do that. And so I was very pleased with myself that I could do that. And so I learned a lot about Judaism. I learned a lot about history, doing that production. And it was beautiful. It was a wonderful, wonderful bunch of people. Glad you had that experience. Oh God. That was only one production. I did three different ones, but the one where I, the longest was 144 times. Same muttle. Amazing. <laughs> same husband. And the same guy who played him. Same guy. Same guy. Yeah. Darling, darling, Keith Shaw, who ended up as working in tech theater in, in New York. He's a costumer and a wig designer, and he worked on Saturday Night Live for a long time. I can never say enough good things about my ex-stage husband, Keith Shaw. <laughs> yeah, your stage husband. My fiddler husband. Your fiddler husband. That's great. Well, when you started touring as a singer-songwriter musician, how did you like the touring part? Hmm. I never asked you this. Well, like anybody else, I guess it has its good parts and its bad parts. Ani DeFranco said I 
I drive for a living. Music is just something I do on my way to the door. (laughs) (laughs) People don't realize how long the day really is. Yeah. It actually never ends. I miss it though. I'm a restless kind of soul. So I I guess I love the travel as much as I hate it. I haven't been anywhere in six, seven, eight months, whatever it is. I still have a bag of toiletries on my dresser that's duplicate of what's in the medicine cabinet because Mm. I just never like to switch things out. It was just always ready to go. And I'm still always ready to go. Yep. Yeah. It takes me about 10 minutes to pack for a tour because I know what to bring. Everything's in the same place. (laughs) It's the truth. Me too. And I love it. I like the routine of it. I like knowing where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. And it still feels kind of weird that I'm not Mm -hmm. every weekend that I'm not going somewhere. Yep. How have you been handling the last bunch of months? You know, we've been off the road because of the pandemic. How's it been? Uh, Not great, honestly. I mean, I can be honest with you since it's just us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just the two of us. No, it it hasn't been great. You know, a lot of people were using the time or felt that we should use the time creatively. It's like, oh, we have nothing but time now, right? So we could just write and play. Not that easy, is it? No, it wasn't. I went weeks sometimes without even picking up the instrument at all. I tried real hard kind of in the beginning. I was like, I put out a bunch of videos. I would just like sing whatever song I felt like singing in whatever room of my house I felt like singing and then put a video on YouTube. And I wasn't even doing the live streams right away because, you know, the room seemed so crowded. Everybody was doing live streams. Mm -hmm. And since when pandemic hit, my husband still had a job. And so I figured, okay, we're not desperate right now. So I'm not going to do this. This is for my friends who have lost all of their touring income in one fell crash. And but then the creative energy went away. I've written, I think, exactly two songs in the last six months. And that's so unlike me. Did that scare you? Yeah, a little bit. Although I do know that it's a passing thing. Now I'm in a place where I'm actively not writing songs. I'm cultivating the ones that are already written because I have a backlog. So I'm kind of, you know, refining, polishing songs that I've already written and starting the process of recording. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not as much creativity as craftsmanship, I guess, when you get to that point. It's like the creative part comes in the, the making of the lyrics and the melody and the accompaniment. And then the craft part comes in the, okay, now I have to practice it 4,000 times and know the guitar part cold and be able to sing it in my sleep, decide how fast to play it, how slow to play it, how to interpret these lyrics. That's the crafty part. And now in pandemic era, it's really crafty because I've had to have this learning curve with learning how to record myself and learning how to use microphones right. and interfaces and the equipment yeah, and recording software. Well, you say that you've only written two songs and mm-hmm. I've heard them both. I've been very privileged and I have to say some of the best work I've ever heard you do. Thank you. That's very, very kind of you to say. Thank you. As a matter of fact, might you sing one of those maybe for us? Maybe I will. This, um... I didn't really want to address the the conditions we were living in, but this was this is where we were in March and April in New York City. Things were looking pretty bleak. This is called Prayer for the Living. Heavy shadows fill the space between the curtains and the wall Through the window I left open I can smell the rain that's just about to fall There's a stillness all around 
nothing I have ever felt before. Such a stillness with no sound, echoes loud enough to shake my core. So I tremble in the dim light and I listen to you breathe until I rise. I move slowly, not to wake you, but the bed creaks and you open up your eyes. There's a sadness hiding there. One I've seen a time or two before. Such a sadness we both share, heavy as the bolt upon our door. was great <laughs> that's really sweet <laughs> well i really appreciate you sharing the song with us is that likely to be on a new album or is that separate i think so i mean in the few places that i've played it i've gotten good response places i should say i played it in my apartment you know for people who listened online and the response has been quite good people have told me i should keep that one so i'm going to keep it it addresses 
the moment in a kind of a roundabout way, you know, especially the darkest part of the pandemic here in New York, that everything was just so deadly quiet mm. and unnaturally so. There was a sense of foreboding everywhere. And I'm hoping this song is universal enough that it will transcend this moment and speak to other moments of crisis in people's lives. So yeah, I'm planning on putting it on the new forthcoming album that I hope to get out sometime before my son reaches adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> He's 14. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, no deadlines. Time is fluid, right? <laughs> let's lighten it up a little bit here. I have a question for you. Do you have any crazy road stories? <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Oh, I have so many. Which one to choose from? Oh, this is the best one. Yeah. This is the craziest travel story of all. <laughs> It was the winter of 2010. <laughs> February of 2010, there was a gigantic blizzard that hit the East Coast and paralyzed everything, like feet of snow. Where did you have to go? We were going to California. <laughs> <laughs> the day we were supposed to fly to, I think, the Bay Area we were going, and, and okay. it paralyzed, like nothing was going anywhere. So we, we were stuck, and we went to the airport the next morning after the blizzard. Still, mind you, like feet of snow on the ground, and snow removal hadn't really happened very well. But we went to the airport, Newark Airport, New Jersey, as early as we possibly could. I left Brooklyn like four in the morning. Oi. Miraculously found a taxi that would take me to Newark Airport. So you guys weren't already out there. No. You literally flew out for one gig. Right. Well, no, it wasn't for one gig. That was for a tour. Okay. In those days, we were very smart and we planned to fly out always the day before a gig, especially when we were going that far. We would never fly in sure. the day of a gig. It was always the day before. So we had, you know, a day to play with, but we had to get to California. We figured, oh, there won't be that many people at the airport at five o'clock in the morning. Wrong. Because the day before... Everything was canceled. All of the flights had been canceled. So everybody had the same thought and everybody in New Jersey and New York went to Newark Airport. <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning the following day. So we, we managed to fly standby. We put ourselves on standby lists. There were three of us in the band. We flew out one at a time. <laughs> on different planes. On different flights. Abby Gardner went first. Her name came up first. So she got on the first <laughs> flight and went out there and picked up the rental car, tooled around. I went out on the next flight, which was many hours later. And she picked me up and we went to get something to eat. And then Laurie McAllister flew out on the very last possible flight she could have gotten and still made the show. We picked her up at the airport in our rental van. She changed her clothes in the van. We got to the show, which had already begun because there were other artists on the bill. So no sound check. No sound check whatsoever. We weren't even sure her plane was going to come in. We're like, she could be delayed or, you know, we'd have to go without her. We were running through the songs that we could do without her. Which were very few, oh, you know, Lord. how could we do this? And meanwhile, we just walked on the stage, plugged in and played a full set. We had been awake for like 26 hours or something like that. Oh, it felt man. like we were high. So no sound check. You do the show. It was hilarious. We couldn't oh. stop laughing on stage. Sure. Because you were tired and you giggle. Tired. We were exhausted. I mean, I have no idea what we sounded like. <laughs> we felt like we played fantastic. We were like, what a great show. We could have stunk. I have no idea. But it was it was as though we were on drugs. Crazy. I swear. I have never been like high on yeah. like LSD or anything like that. But that's about as close as I've ever gotten to like a trip. That's crazy. That's a crazy story. <laughs> it was crazy. It was just crazy. What we do for folk music. Yeah. But we didn't miss a show. Then we had a tour, you know, after that. Sure. Ah, oh, the good old days. <laughs> I know you've done some other touring and some solo work, obviously, but what has the last few years been like? 
No Fuss and Feathers had kind of cooled down a little bit. No Fuss and Feathers is a quartet. I like quartets, like ours. That was mm-hmm. a nice quartet, too. We could yes. spend a whole show talking about CC Railroad. Um, There's still thoughts of a reunion, right? There's thoughts of a reunion. But No Fuss has kind of cooled down in the last couple of years because of, again, personal moves. Karen Oliver moved to North Carolina and then, and then now to Texas and... Jade Catherine moved further away. And so, you know, we hadn't been touring quite as often. And so I kind of started to feel like, here, all right, I'm heating up here. I I put out an album in 2018 that was getting well received. And I was really just kind of starting to become the troubadour again. And I was really, really happy being the troubadour again. It was kind of nice just to come and go on my own where and when I pleased. I worked a little bit with Joe Iadanza as a duo project, but that was never meant to be a long-term thing. The show I saw in Bethlehem at Godfrey Daniels was spectacular. So I actually hope that you and Joe continue to do some projects here and there. We might. Who knows? That was among the shows that had to be canceled this spring. I had a whole bunch of stuff lined up with Joe. And then there were more that we canceled in September that were Caroline and Joe shows. So certainly a lot of our friends took harder hits in terms of the number of shows canceled. But for me, it was a lot of shows. Like I don't play as much as true road dogs. I play maybe eight or 10 shows a month maximum. You were in a good place, weren't you? I was kind of hitting that stride and then it all fell apart. It just was a bummer. Yeah. I was starting to feel like I was getting to be in a good place. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, my son is older now. He's able to take care of himself. And here I am world. I'm ready. Everybody wants a 50 year old folk singer, don't they? (laughs) Yeah, they do. (laughs) They got your voice. Yeah, they do. Do you agree with me in this? I think that folk music makes it easier for people, women in particular to age. Yes. Absolutely. Than pop music or any other kind of music. I'm glad that, you know, nobody even takes you seriously in folk music until you're at least 40. (laughs) So, you know, you have to have a little life experience to write about it. Yeah. And you could be who you are in this community. And we're we're lucky that way. Yeah. Grownups. I can let my hair go silver and it doesn't matter. That's right. It's actually a bit of a curiosity. So (laughs) people have something to talk to me about. Uh, (laughs) Look forward to you getting back out on the road when this is all over. Is that something you're looking forward to? Yeah. You know, it's like... I don't know what to look forward to. This is going to sound really heavy, but I feel like our industry is going to emerge from this. Yes, it will. But I would be foolish to predict how. Like, I don't know what it's going to mean anymore. Is it going to be the same? Is touring the way I used to tour going to be possible anymore or desirable? Is Or half of the venues that I have relationships with, will they still be there. I don't know. So I guess I'm trying to be remain optimistic, but I'm also trying to like think about other ways to do what I do. I think we're all rethinking yep. the industry no doubt. together. It's an ongoing process and it'll be an interesting couple of years. I think you're right. I think when we emerge from this live music scene is going to look a little different at first, but I do know that our fans are, are also excited to get to see us all again and be in the same room with us. I do think that live music will come back in a certain way, but we don't know yeah. when and we don't know how. I miss it as a fan too. Do you miss it as a fan? I really do. I do miss it as a fan. I miss it as a fan. Obviously, we also also attend certain festivals together, mm-hmm. whether we're playing them or not, certain conferences together, whether we're participating in them as musicians or not, as a chance to see all the people that we know. Oh, yeah. You know, it's become a family. And so we're not able to see our family on a regular basis like we always do. Yeah. And so, yes, that's tough. But, yeah, you know, I, I work for a Celtic festival in Ontario. And one of the reasons I was very adamant about putting on a virtual event was because I know how hard this is on the fans, especially those that are not musicians and don't have that outlet. Their whole social scene, their whole social calendar has been canceled. Yeah. It happened abruptly. They were all making plans mm-hmm. to attend summer festivals and they made their hotel reservations and they got their festival tickets and they were looking forward to 
to it. And I think this has hit them extremely hard. And I think it's really important to give back and to do these virtual events. I know that you've popped up from time to time without notification on Facebook, giving people some songs. And I hope you continue to do that. I was talking with Mark, my husband, the other day about this. Another most amazing fine songwriter that you will ever find is one Mark Barube. He is. He really is. But anyway, I said, I'm not sure that I ever want to plan another concert. I mean, I do, you know, planned concerts for if people ask me to. Even online? Online, yeah. I do them if, you know, when asked by presenting organizations or by friends to sit in. I did the mm-hmm. Greenwich Village Folk Festival online. Just the other night we did a show with the Chicks with Dip, the collective that Cheryl and I mm-hmm. both belong to. But I really kind of like... You know, okay, I've just had dinner with my family and a nice glass of wine. And then I'm like, I'm going to go put myself in the office for a couple hours. I shut the door and I'm like, let's go live. (laughs) People show up. That's great. Just randomly. I think it's great. Yeah. And it's funny to watch the comments. It's like, look, everybody, Carol Ann, she's on now. I'm a terrible planner. (laughs) It's just great. You know what? It takes the pressure off. The technical learning curve is so steep for me that I find I feel very stilted sometimes when I'm doing planned performances. So if I could do them off the cuff in a moment where I really feel camera ready and like I feel like I really want to perform, I'll do better, you know? pop-ups. Well, I think it's great. And I hope you continue to do them. And as a fan of Caroline Solabello's, I'm grateful that you're doing them. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> thank you, Cheryl. <laughs> um, speaking of such events, where can people find you on the interweb? They can find me on the Book of the Faces at uh, <laughs> facebook.com slash Caroline Solabello at Instagram slash Caroline Solabello and at my very own website, carolinesolabello.com. Fantastic. I have a YouTube channel, which is YouTube slash Caroline Solabella. It's all perfect. I'm the only person in the world with my name, I think. Carol Ann, one word, Solabello, S-O-L-E-B-E-L-L-O. Very Italian. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How'd you guess? <laughs> I'm going to make a reservation for when this is all over for pasta and bread over at Caroline's house. All right. You got it, sister. <laughs> so I've been asking people um, during these interviews, Carol Ann, tell us something quirky or cute or funny that people would never guess about you? (laughs) Well, at the moment, I'm sitting in the quietest room in my house, which is the bedroom. It is the innermost room. And I'm looking at my bed, which is perfectly neatly made. (laughs) You wouldn't expect this from a musician, right? I do this every day. Every, every day I make my bed. Oh, me too. You do? I have always have. I can't not. I knew I liked you. Do you feel the same way? (laughs) Yeah. I, I didn't know that about you. I make beds when I go to hotels. I leave hotels with beds made. <laughs> I can't stand it. I don't like an unmade bed. That is adorable. People are like, what does it matter? What does it matter? My son, you know, fights me on this. He's 14. Of course, 14-year-old boys do not like to make their beds. I said, but then you get in bed at night. There's nice, you know, fresh <laughs> sheets. <laughs> he doesn't care. Oh, I care. That's the best. That's the best. You rock, Carolyn. Oh, no. You rock, Cheryl Prashker. You have drumsticks, so therefore you rock harder. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. This is a lot of fun. One of the reasons we chose to do this is so that I could get a chance to talk to the musicians that I know, the talented artists, get to know a little bit more about them, but also just because it's fun to chat. I like chatting and I know my friends like chatting, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, why not share the wealth? (laughs) Yes. We chat with each other all the time. Why not share the wealth with everybody else? Nobody hears those. (laughs) Right. We find each other incredibly entertaining. I hope that everybody else does too. (laughs) 
Caroline Solabello. Thank you, Cheryl. You are amazing for appearing on Folk Pod, and I cannot wait to talk to you again. Thank you for doing this. Everybody, you've been listening to Caroline Solabello here on Folk Pod. I'll see you next time. Bye. My Canadian friends would like to know if you can put on a little Staten Island oh, accent no. for us. I couldn't possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I needed to take a sip of water first. <laughs> For those not in the know, Staten Island is the fifth borough of New York City. We are the forgotten borough. We were the borough where everyone dumped their trash. Oi. Oi. Yes. There's a park. (laughs) It's a park now. Fresh Kills. Oh, yes. What a perfect name. But when I was growing up, Fresh Kills was a place you drove past on the highway (laughs) as fast as you possibly could. To get away from the smell, which was like sticking your head in a garbage can. Thank you. That's great. That's great. I haven't heard you do that in a very long time. You're welcome. Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host and producer, and Shauna Boniface, our creator, producer, editor, head cook, and bottle washer. Catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Folkpod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.